Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style and powerography would like to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners quartz and canary jewelry and wellness company use code empower 15 to receive 15 percent off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com quartz and canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style hello there brad walsh here your host of the empowerography podcast today my guest is rochelle ritchie she is a media and crisis communications expert a writer and a political analyst how are you doing today rochelle good morning brad thank you so much for having me oh it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you here thank you for making the time to be here with me today i'm really excited to to jump in and and share a bit about your story and your journey and what you do i know we've been trying mm-hmm. to get this together for a while now so it's finally nice to have you here with yeah. me to chat <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah it's been quite a journey for us to have the opportunity to talk i've been moving and relocating and all these different things so I'm finally somewhat settled. <laughs> well, that's good. So let's jump right in. Rochelle, as mentioned, you are a seasoned media and crisis communi- communications expert, a writer, a highly sought after political analyst who has been featured on many of the big networks on TV. When did you first get into or start your journey into the world of media? I started my journey around 2005, a few months after I graduated, early 2005, I believe, a few months after I graduated from college. And I was a television reporter. My first job was in Lawton, Oklahoma. If you're in the Army, you'll you'll recognize it by Fort Sill. So I was in uh, Lawton, Fort Sill, Oklahoma for my first television reporting job. And then from there, I went on to Spokane, Washington and served as a morning reporter, which was a very aggressive sort of schedule because I would think I was getting up at like three in the morning to be on air by 4.30 and those kind of things. And then I left. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But you know, the great thing about being a morning reporter, which I, I try to tell young reporters is that you get a lot of experience on camera and you spend a lot of time going live and having to cover breaking news and ad lib and things like that. So it is a really great schedule to have, especially if you are young and in the business, because you get a lot more camera time because your hits are coming, you know, about every 30 minutes or so on a morning show, as opposed to when you're doing like an evening broadcast, you have one hit, maybe two, and then you're done. So Washington State, Spokane, beautiful. And then I went down to West Palm Beach, Florida, where I was a reporter there as well. And and got to interview the likes of Don King, Matt Lauer, even visited Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump, a couple of, you know, different high profile people down in West Palm. And then I moved up to Baltimore uh, and I was working at my favorite job that I've had in television was at WJZ in Baltimore. And I was a crime reporter there. And then I had a change of heart and I left the business officially in 2015. Wow. As a television reporter, I left. Yeah, I'll say that. So what inspired you to jump into media and communications? And what was your very first gig in that world? So my first gig again was uh, at Lodge Sale. But I'll say this uh, a little bit of a funny story. My first interview television 
interview, reporting interview, was in a town called Mason City, Iowa. And I remember flying into, I think I had to fly into Minneapolis or, yeah, I think it was Minneapolis. I'm not sure. And this (laughs) photographer came to pick me up and we were driving and we're going, you know, crossing into Iowa. And it really reminded me of Napoleon Dynamite. Like, I really- (laughs) I love that movie. (laughs) I, I did too. It's hilarious. And I said, so it's really like this, like, you know, and it was crazy. And what was also interesting is that the way that they described African-Americans, because when I was in the car with the photographer and we're driving back and we're talking just about the city, the station, you know, he said to me, you know, we don't have a lot of colored people in Mason City. Oh my gosh. And I was kind of taken aback, but I'm like, well, this guy's been super nice the whole time. Helped me with my bag. Stopped to get something to eat. And someone told me that in some parts, they still refer to Black people as colored and that they actually are not doing it to be insulting, but they just are, I guess, somewhat sheltered. I'm not sure. Wow. Um, to where they don't know that that's just not acceptable. And when I got to Mason City, Iowa, I saw exactly what he was talking about, colored or not. Yeah, I thought I was like the only Black person in the town. <laughs> and so that was my first like reporting interview. And I remember calling my mom crying in the hotel. And I was like, I can't live here. I, I mean, I just I just knew that I could yeah. not do that. It was not going to be a fit. So luckily, Lawton came around, which is, you know, kind of cool because, you know, they have a army base there and you know, sometimes that makes the community, you know, have a little bit more activity right. um, and things to do. So that was a good fit for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can't. Holy crow. I, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah, As I'm sure you, know, you were you were just blown away, I'm sure. I was. But, you know, it honestly prepared me to deal with people from all walks of life. And so it it did stun me a little bit. And I, you know, at the time I was a lot younger, so I definitely wasn't using my voice as much as I do now. And then it's my first television job. I'm like, oh, I don't want to make anybody mad and, you know, whatever. So, you know, kind of had that mentality. But yeah, he definitely said color. When you first got into the world of television, did you face any adversity being a woman in that world? And if so, how did you deal with it? Like when you first started your career? I think that when I first started I don't really you know sometimes it's not in plain sight right you know what I mean like sometimes yeah. there's things that are happening sort of behind the scenes I would say that you don't really yeah there's undertones of that there's a passive aggressiveness yeah but when you're young and you're going into particularly this field of journalism and television you don't really recognize it it's not until you've been in the business, I think, for some time and you start to watch how management operates, how they're making certain decisions about who covers stories and things like that, that you start to notice, okay, there's a little bit of discrimination happening yeah. here. For instance, there was one station that I worked at and they were always sending me to the crime scenes, you know, that were yeah. in the inner city, but they did not send, you know, some of the white women that right. were also reporters in those areas. So wow. it was just interesting that I was constantly being fed the inner city stories yeah. um, while they were out in the suburb, in a sense. So, you you know, you see those kind of things, but I don't know if that was necessarily because I'm a woman or because I'm Black. Honestly, my mindset is that I'm Black first, I'm a woman second, because I'm going to experience some sort of adversity and discrimination and passive aggressiveness, all those kind of things solely based off of my skin color. Right. And then you couple that with the fact that I am a woman. Yeah, 
for sure. So how do you, you had mentioned that when you were younger, when you first started out, you were just kind of, you kept yourself quiet. You just did what you had to do kind of thing. And now as you've matured into your career and grown into your career and found your voice and all that, how would you deal with that stuff now, as opposed to previously? Oh, I'm calling it out every time. (laughs) Every time, unapologetically. Beautiful. I will call it out every time. By the time I really matured into my career, I was kind of known for calling out stuff and saying something wasn't right in the newsroom blatantly. I definitely. (laughs) How um, did that go over though? People respected it and they knew that, you know, when you call somebody out on their bullshit and they don't expect you to. That's when they realize, okay, this is not the one that I'm going to be able to get over on. (laughs) And I have, you know, I've been through so many challenges with my career, just in my life to where I'm really not afraid. Yeah. I I truly am not afraid of anything when it comes to a professional work setting. Yeah. I am going to be respected. I am going to manage my own work-life balance. And you're not going to shun me because of my race or my gender and think that you're going to get away with it. I'm going to expose your bias or your racism or your sexism or whatever every single time. I love that. That is amazing. And I'm also going to document it. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. And I'm sure that makes you a role model for other women who are just coming into this world or younger women that are just coming into this world as well. They see how you're handling things. And I'm sure you probably have mentored other women, younger women coming in as well to teach them, hey, you don't have to put up with this shit. You know, I am not... I will honestly admit, I am not the best mentor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not because I'm still trying to figure out my own life. And I think that people can be mentors even in the midst of that. But I don't have the energy at this point to extend to anyone else outside of like my younger siblings and and maybe my friends. I definitely want to get into that space. But until I feel that I have enough energy to extend an emotional bandwidth and time to extend to a young person, my mentorship is going to be very, very limited in its scope. Not saying that young girls do not reach out to me and ask me for advice, certainly. But I feel that a mentor is more than just offering advice. That person is checking in on you. That person is, you know, spending time with you. I don't have the bandwidth for that right now. Right. So for those who might not know or be aware of Rochelle, what is a crisis communications expert? So I would define a crisis communications expert as someone who knows how to handle a, a tragedy or a traumatic event that's happening to a person or an organization, they know how to handle that situation with the press. Um, They're a person who is going to wordsmith your your talking points, your statements, your press release to the point that you don't find yourself in more trouble than probably what you're already in. A crisis communications expert also is proactive. A lot of times, a lot of people are kind of reactive when it comes to a crisis, but I believe that your crisis communications expert has to be proactive. If you know something is coming down the pipeline or you know that there's going to be a problem, your crisis communications expert should already be on top of it. You should already have statements approved and drafted, press releases, talking points. You should already have, if there's a press conference that's needed, you should already have it scheduled and ready to go. Now, of course, it doesn't always happen like that. We would hope that would be the scenario. Mm -hmm. But even in those reactive moments, 
that crisis communications person is really protecting your reputation. That That's really their whole job is like looking at reputational risk, whether it's a forthcoming situation or if it's something that is happening like in a breaking news kind of situation or whatnot. Now, you've had quite a career, successful career, lengthy career in media and communications and been part of some pretty big events in news. You've rubbed elbows with some pretty big names, as you mentioned previously. What has that been like for you getting to connect and meet with some of these people and work with them, work alongside of them? Well, I say that it's always an honor for sure. I would say more so when you're interviewing someone that is, you know, a high profile, that that is definitely an honor to do. Working with people that are that are high profile is also great, but it's still work. Yeah. So at some point you get over the glitz and glam of who someone is and you're just doing your job. I mean, even when I was a, a reporter interviewing, because one of my most notable interviews was, was with uh, First Lady Michelle Obama. Right. That was in 2008 before President Obama won the election, first election, obviously. Yeah. And that was probably the time that I probably stepped outside of that reporter role and was a little bit more emotional and giddy because yeah. it was just her and I and a small little room with, you know, some sort of security and my camera guy, my photographer. And, you know, after it was done, it's like, I started to have tears in my eyes and and where I told her, you know, it's such an honor. Like you all are, you know, letting all of us know that it is possible that saying, you know, that for a little black kid saying, I want to be the president of the United States. We now know that that can, that can be true in this country. So that was probably the first time that I stepped outside. But other than that, I mean, I, I I worked the Capitol as a U.S. congressional press secretary. I have stood right next to Nancy Pelosi. You know, she probably didn't know my name, but (laughs) (laughs) I worked with one of her committees and then, you know, just other members of Congress and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's work. So it's a privilege to be able to be in those positions and have those things on my resume. And while I think most people would be like super impressed to meet some of these people, I I'm like, I worked for them or I worked with them. And that was it. So if you look back on your career up to this point now, what would you say then, I'm going to guess here that it's the the moment you just mentioned, but what would you say is the biggest or at least in the top three of your most memorable moments so far in your career? Top three, obviously interviewing First Lady Michelle yeah. Obama, doing my natural hair story where I cut my hair off on television. I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> and then if I step outside of things related to television reporting, I also worked for the state's attorney's office of Baltimore City. I started that in 2015. I was right after I left WJZ as a reporter. And I started there as a director of communications in February. And then on April, I believe it was April 19th or around that time was the death of Freddie Gray. And so those three are my most memorable. Michelle Obama, cutting off my hair on television, (laughs) and then being the spokesperson and director of comms during the Freddie Gray police brutality case. Those are some damn big moments in history for sure. (laughs) In your career thus far, what is the one story you have worked on, reported on, or written about that has been the most newsworthy and the most impactful for you? It would be that my natural hair story, was it newsworthy? I don't know. But for me, it was very, very personal. This was in 2010 
November of two, was it? Yeah, November 2010, I believe, I did a story where I talked about the issues that Black women face with their hair and their hairstyles in the workplace. And okay. when I started out in the television news, you know, I was told that I needed to wear extensions and make my hair longer because I had kind of like a shortcut at the time. So I, <laughs> I went and I got extensions and I'm thinking to myself, you know, okay, now I'm going to get that first job. And believe it or not, when I put the extensions in my hair, I started getting calls um, that is from insane. news directors for interviews. Yes. I'm so serious. And so for several years, I faithfully wore wigs and hair extensions in order to fit this Eurocentric standard of beauty that was acceptable and appropriate. <laughs> yeah, air um, quotes. quotes. <laughs> yeah, air quotes there. Appropriate television appearance. Holy shit. And so in 2010, I was in Miami and I was getting my extensions, you know, back in yeah. or whatnot. And I met this black woman who became a really good friend of mine. Unfortunately, she did end up passing, but she became a really, really great friend of mine. And she asked me, why was I getting extensions? She had this, you know, big, beautiful, curly hair. And I was like, oh, I'm a television reporter and blah, blah, blah. She's like, you should cut your hair off and just go natural. Just wear your hair natural. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, who is this? She doesn't know me. Like, how is she all in my business? So, <laughs> so she inspired me to do it. And then my producer heard me on the phone talking to a friend saying, yeah, I think I'm just going to go natural and blah, blah, blah. And so she asked me, she was Jewish. And she asked me, she's like, what, what does that mean? I heard you, you know, on your phone saying you're going to go natural. What is that? And I explained to her and she said, oh, you should do a story on that. That would be great. <laughs> and for, she was like, that'd be great for sweeps. Because at this time it's August. Like, yeah, around that time, July, August, right in there. And so one day I went back down to the same woman that was putting in my extensions. And I told her that I wanted her to cut off all of my relaxed hair. And so my hair went from, you know, these long, glorious extensions and wigs to like a mini Afro. <laughs> but from August until November, I actually wore a wig because okay. the story wasn't going to air until November. So I couldn't go on air yeah. with my hair short because that would ruin the whole right. big ordeal. The reveal. So exactly. So funny enough, I was in TJ Maxx one day and I saw this woman who now on the weekends, I would not wear the wigs. I would just wear it natural. Yeah. But um, I saw this woman in TJ Maxx and she was with her daughter and she came up to me and she asked me oh, what products do you use? And all this. And I was like, well, I'm still kind of learning because I just did this like a few weeks ago yeah. and I told her what I was doing. And she said, oh my gosh, she's like, I just cut off my hair because my daughter was being teased on the playground for her locks and for her like naturally textured hair or whatever. Yeah. And so I begged this woman to be a part of my story and she agreed. The story <laughs> ended up, I revealed it at the end. You know, I'm sitting at the desk. I have these, I have my natural hair out very short. And this, the story ended up going viral. I ended up going in. I was in Essence Magazine, Ebony, wow. USA Today. I was on the Tom Joyner Morning Show with Jackie <laughs> Reed at the time. And it just, it took, I got hair products from Miss Jessie's, Mixed Chick, uh, wow. you know, books, all types, t-shirts, all types of things. And I think what I am, well, I'm very, very proud of that story. What frustrates me the most is that during that time, there wasn't, I think Instagram had literally just came out in like okay. 2010. There wasn't this social media 
sort of viral. I mean, it went viral like in the press, but yeah. it went viral on like YouTube and things like that. But you know, the the Instagrams of the world weren't really heavy hitting at that yeah. time. Yeah. And so one of the things I regret the most is that I didn't jump on that opportunity to develop a hair product to create you know, something, I, I don't know, just create some sort of business around what I did, because I see now that so many women that are now following in my footsteps are doing that, but they also have the power and the platform of social media to do so. And when you're a reporter, I mean, I know a lot of reporters out here are now monetizing themselves, but when you're a genuine reporter, <laughs> you don't think about making money off of your story. That's you don't right. even think you, you just don't even have all that. you care about is the story. You just care about the story yeah. and, and how the viewers are receiving it. Right. And that and that's it. That's a true reporter. But now you have reporters out here that are getting money just to make TikTok videos and dance. I see more posts of reporters doing TikTok dances than I do of their actual work, wow. which is really annoying to me. That's sad. Yeah, it's, it's everybody wants to be a character. Yeah. And it, I didn't come into the business at that time where this was, that was like the norm. Yeah, for sure. So what would you say has been one of the most challenging stories or events you had to work on in your career? Gosh, there's been a lot. I have covered a lot of death. And I remember there was a time where I was going through my phone as a reporter and I had all these pictures of people and just all these moments, you know, the worst moments of a family's life, finding out their loved one's dead, you know, shot, died in a car accident, you know, whatever the case may have been. And I had to do a purge of my phone because I would be swiping through and I would see pictures of people that, and, and even children that I knew had died. I would say two times in my career where it was very difficult. Obviously, Freddie Gray was extremely challenging. You know, I just left the business. Normally, I'm the person asking the questions. And now I'm on the other side preparing for a press conference, an international press conference. The first press conference that I ever put on was when the state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, walked down the steps of the war memorial in Baltimore City to press charges against six police officers. You know, I, I didn't get the we're having a bait sale press conference. No. I got the straight up and down hardcore. Can you do this? Will it look good? And from what I understand, that press conference was phenomenal, not only in its appearance, but also, you know, the state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, is a wonderful orator. And so her words on the steps, the, the image of it was extremely, extremely powerful. But it was also a very difficult time because we were, at the time in the state's attorney's office, we were dealing with threats, uh, threats towards her, her family, threats towards the office. There was a lot of tension. There was doubt. There was fear. There were tears. You know, every time one of the officers got off, it was just like, gosh, like what is happening? And having to feel the media requests. I remember getting into a very heated exchange with a former Baltimore Sun reporter. And I think that some of the reporters in Baltimore at the time thought that because they knew me as a reporter on the field that used to work alongside them, that they could sort of disrespect me or just, you know, just be extremely nasty to me. And I will never yeah. forget that phone call that I had with one of the Baltimore Sun reporters that was just disgusting. The things that he said, yeah. he's no longer there, but, but yeah, I, I, I would say that was extremely difficult. And then the most difficult story I would say also in Baltimore was a story where a, a house had caught on fire and five children had died. Oh my and gosh. I went to, for whatever reason, I, I don't know why um, funerals are news. You know, I was assigned to go to the funeral and speak to people. And I mean, oh, I don't know talk why. About a tough job. Yeah. And speak to people. And I remember sitting, you know, up in the 
balconies of the church, just like very emotional seeing those, you know, those five little caskets there. And, yeah. and that was just difficult. And then I continued to kind of cover stories like that. And then finally, I went to the news director at one point and said, I, I no longer can do these funerals because it got to the point, not just that funeral, but I was covering other deaths. Right. And, but particularly with young people, and I think it's because I have younger siblings, with young people, it was extremely difficult. And I remember going to the news director and I said, I can't go into these funerals anymore because yeah. I was crying in the live truck. And my photographer sometimes would be like, no, just stay here. I'll, I'll go get some shots or whatever. Yeah. Um, just stay here. Because I couldn't do it. I could not yeah. deal with it. That's a lot to handle. Seeing all that death all the time on a consistent right. basis, constant basis. It's a lot for anyone to have to deal with, but to also have to report on that and showing up at a funeral. I'm sure the last thing people want to do is talk to a reporter at a funeral. Right. You know, and so, and what's funny about news though, sometimes is which, you know, if you, if you work in the business, you've been in the fields, you know, this to be true, that there are times where there is a, an agreement between your competing stations that none of us are going to knock on the door. Right. Or one of us is going to go and knock on the door and we all agree that if the person agrees to speak, then the rest of us will come. But I, yeah. there was a story where a guy had drowned and we just weren't, we we're like, no, I'm not going over there to talk to the family. We're just going to, and we all said the family declined to comment just because there are times where you have to be human, even in your career and yeah. in, in the fields of journalism and reporting, you still have to have some sort of human decency. And when it doesn't right. feel right in your spirit, don't do it. So have you had any moments then where, as you just said, you'll talk with the other reporters from other state competing stations. Has there ever been a time where you guys have all talked and one of them or two of them has said, no, 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 I'm, I'm going anyways, or no, we, we need to report on this. And the rest of you disagreed. Of course. Like I can't, you know, we can't tell, you know, another station, like don't go and do yeah. this. It was just, sometimes we would all show up at the same time and, you know, some would, you know, one might knock on the door and the other one might just stand on the sidewalk and just wait to see. But, you know, of course there's going to be times where someone else shows up and they're, and they're going to do what they do. But I know that I've had instances where the story was so tragic. And the family was so broken and emotional that the idea of knocking on their door and you can feel the energy when you, when you show up to a neighborhood, yeah. you can feel the energy that you're not wanted there. You can tell, and I'm not going to push the limit to where now myself or my photographer would become a news story because we were trying to talk to a grieving family or yeah. something like that. It's just not worth it. And there's always tomorrow. There's always yeah. that time where you can come back and try again later. But there are just some cases where you, you just use that, your intuition is like, mm, not today. Just leave it alone. Yeah. So with all the things and events you've witnessed and been part of in your career, how have all of these experiences helped shape the Rochelle you are today, both personally and professionally? I would definitely say that I'm certainly unafraid to use my voice. I'm unafraid to call out things that I see are wrong. I also think very critically about a lot of things. Like I listen to what people are saying. I find the holes in what they are saying because that's kind of my job going back to that crisis expert is to find the holes yeah. and to fill the holes. And I'm just a little bit more confident in my own opinions and ideas. And I think that I am also very versatile. I, I mean, I can hang out with anybody. I can hang <laughs> out with you and drink bourbon in Kentucky. And then I can go down <laughs> to Miami and dance bachata. And then I can 
you know, go yeah. to Harlem and, you know, listen to hip hop or whatever the case may be. But I'm just a very overall versatile person. I have not lived in one place all my life. I've yeah. been all over the country, all over the world, dealing with all kinds of people, which makes me really receptive to listening to people's ideas or perspectives, even if I think they are just a completely outlandish. I mean, that's probably why I can go on Fox <laughs> News and I can go on Fox News and be comfortable because I have dealt with so many people from all walks of life that nothing surprised me. That's a, that, I think that's a very beneficial skill set to have for sure. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the thing that lights you up the most about the work that you do? You know, I'll be honest. I'm in a place where this work doesn't spark anything in me. And that's why, you know, I was saying earlier about the mentorship until I kind of figure out where that spark is. It's very hard for me to kind of guide anybody else. I am in what I would call sort of a career crisis as far as I don't mind doing television hits for the national networks on occasion, but that's not my full-time job. That's not the money that I'm going to retire off of. That's not paying my health insurance or giving me a 401k match or anything like that. So finding that position that really makes me happy and that I feel like I can stick with has been quite a challenge. Now, I was working for a college in New York prior to the pandemic. And that was probably after I left television news, that was probably the job that I was the most happiest in. But because of the pandemic, financial struggles, things like that, I and other senior members were laid off. Unfortunately, some people were furloughed, but I was on a senior leadership team. I had a great salary and I was laid off, you know, and then my dad got sick with COVID in April of 2020. And so it's just been like a roller coaster since 2020 of trying to get my footing in my career, deal with my grief and, you know, turning 40 this year. So it's like, yeah, um, it's which a is lot. a blessing. It's a blessing, but so it's just been a lot. So that's why I'm like, I don't really have the emotional bandwidth to extend to anyone outside of my immediate family at this moment, because I'm still trying to figure out me. You know, I could come up with a great response because that's (laughs) what I do in PR and I can give you a great answer. But the answer is, I don't know. I don't have that light right now. Well, I appreciate the honesty and the vulnerability with sharing that. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? Resiliency, just being resilient. I have gone through a lot professionally and personally, and I've had to do it in in the public eye. You know, one thing is, is that with being in the public eye and, you know, on television and things like that, a lot of times those people are dealing with some really terrible moments in their life. And everyone thinks that because they're on television, they look so happy, their makeup is great, their hair looks great, that they're fine. And a lot of times they're not. So it's being able to, which I, you know, I don't know if it's a, if this is a good or a bad thing, because I think a lot of times because you are still trying to fit this image or share this image image to the world that you you tend to cover up and ignore what's really going on and you yeah. don't address it. And I think that for many years and even now, like I was covering up a lot of my own mental health issues that I was struggling with because I thought that I had to be on you know, air quotes on like Mm -hmm. all the time, whether I was on air, whether I was off air, I always had to appear like I was like, fine. And I wasn't. And when I left the business and then particularly over the last two years, I have prioritized 
my mental health and my self-care and my wellness. And some people might not be comfortable with it. And I realized that in some ways I did become a little bit too self-absorbed. So I've had to find that balance of still showing up for people that need me, but also making sure that I continue to put myself first. That had to be fucking exhausting to always be on and think you always had to be on and push down and tamp down everything that was going on within yourself and just always have this face on that everything's okay. It had to be absolutely exhausting mentally, physically, everything. Yeah. And I think it was Miss America, Chelsea, I think it's her name. Chess. I can't remember her name. I apologize. But the Miss America that passed away by suicide this year. And, you know, I think when that happened, it really bothered me because I could see myself in her where you're beautiful, you're, you're smart, you're intelligent, you're winning these awards, like your Instagram looks great, you're like everything. And then you're dealing with something that nobody can see, because yeah. you've pushed all of that down so much that now when people see like, what's happened, they're like, how, why would she do that? Well, she was struggling. And just because someone appears to be okay, just because it looks like they have the best life ever. You think about Anthony Bourdain traveling around the world, you know, working for CNN, experiencing life, but struggling. And so we have to get to a point where we have to stop thinking that just because someone has money, just because someone, their appearance is, you know, the standard of beauty in this country, all those kind of things. We have to stop thinking that those people are okay. And the other thing is we have to stop showing up as if we are. And when we are not, we need to say no. I took a long break from doing anything on television because I was exhausted and I did not have the time to deal with political bullshit when I was dealing with real life. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about all the things that you've witnessed and been part of and seen. And that in itself is just... I mean, no normal, air quotes, normal Mm -hmm. human being has to go through and see that. So that's extremely taxing emotionally. Like, it's just insane. It definitely is. I mean, you're dealing with other people's emotions when you can't even, you don't even have the time to deal with your own. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot for a human being to have to deal with. Yes, it is. Can you share a situation that's occurred in your life that you feel provides insight as to your character, who you are, Rochelle? Yeah. My dad's death honestly does that for me. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, he died. um, He was diagnosed with COVID in April 2020. And then he died September 2020. And he fought five months and 29 days. And he was 57 years old when he passed away. And I think, thank you. I think during that time, I really got to see when I mentioned, you know, resiliency, I really got to see it because you know, he was diagnosed in April, a coworker and friend of mine died that same month. And, you know, and I had talked to her two nights before where she said she was feeling sick. And I was like, well, do you think you need to go to the hospital? Because obviously COVID was going around and yeah. we were in, we were in Harlem, we were in New York. So we're in the thick of it. And she said no. And then two days later, she was found unresponsive in her home and, and died in the hospital. And then my dad goes to the hospital. And then that was April. And then in May, I'm laid off from my job. So in oh, June, shit. I have to move out of New York, go back home to my mom's house. Dad's still in the hospital looking for jobs while at the same time calling the hospital pretty much every hour or so yeah. because my father was not married. 
So I'm considered the next of kin. So a lot of decisions had to come through me. Obviously, I had my grandmother, my aunt, my sister, cousins, and things like that to help me along in making decisions. It wasn't just me making the decision, but that was June. And then finally, I was able to go to the hospital and be by his side. And I was trying to work while also in the hospital, you know, wearing pretty much like a a astronaut (laughs) gear, you know, on a COVID floor where there were 17 to 19 COVID patients. But I was blessed to be able, because I know there's a, a lot of your listeners might hear this and say they wish they had been able to do what I was able to do by being by my father's side up until the day that he died. So I know that I am very, very blessed to have been given that opportunity, but I also fought like hell to get it. I was threatening to like go on the news and talk about it. Like I was (laughs) (laughs) just all all the gloves were off. Yeah, I used all of my resources. I remember reaching out to a congressperson that I had worked for to get them to maybe send a letter to the hospital, just everything. So I really, really fought to be by his bedside and I was, and up until his last final moment. And I think that that really exposed my, just my character and my integrity and my willingness to give it all up for those that I love. And, and by that, I mean, I quit the job. I said, I can't do this. I'll figure it out. But right now my priority is my father and not your social media posts. So I left that job to be there for him. And luckily, you know, I'm, I'm blessed in so many ways. And that's another thing that I also realized during this time is, is how blessed I am because my family was in a position where I didn't have to worry. You know, if I didn't have money coming in, it was okay. I didn't have rent. I didn't have to worry about a car. I didn't have to worry about food. All like, I really had the privilege of just being there to serve my father in his final days. And so I've just realized how blessed I am And I've realized how strong I am and how much I truly do care for people because I didn't just sit at my father's bedside and just cry. I took care of him. I scrubbed his feet. I clipped his nails. I scrubbed his beard. I exfoliated. He was bald. So I exfoliated his his head so he didn't get a lot of dead skin. I played music for him. I did physical therapy with him. I prayed over him profusely to the point that I would reach all the way up to the top of his head. And I would touch the soles of his feet and I would pray heavily for 20 to 30 minutes. And I'm not, look, I'm probably considered a heathen to most (laughs) Christians, but when it came to that, I know God and I know the word enough to where I could pray over my father's spirit and his soul. And then even when he, his final moments, you know, my family was in the room and of course people start to get emotional because you realize that this is the moment. Yeah. And I didn't want him because he was still alert yeah. for, for the most part. You know, he was still alert enough. And I remember I didn't want him to hear us in our grief as he transitioned. Yeah. And so I put my AirPods in his ear yeah. and I turned on some like meditation kind of music to where his transition could be peaceful without, you know, hearing the grief that was yeah. going to continue after he was long gone. That is so powerful. I mean, first of all, incredibly emotional and taxing, but also such a gift that you were able to be there and do Mm -hmm. all of that and be all of that for him during that time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I would do it 10 times over. Because my my grandmother passed of COVID in 2020, and she was in a long term care facility, and we didn't get to go in and see her. 
And that was so tough to not be able to see her to, to say a proper goodbye. Right. It's so just so powerful, that story. Thank you for sharing that moment and being so vulnerable with that. That's beautiful. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after learning it? I think worry, just worried about little stuff. And I, and I still struggle with the worry thing, but now, you know, since 2020 and and just the last two years, it's like, I just don't have time. (laughs) (laughs) Like I just don't have time to be sitting here worried about just the little things, like little, this shit that you just don't need to be worried about that much. I also feel like I put my life on hold a lot. I thought, okay, one of my friends, you know, would always say like, we should go to Greece. We should go to Santorini or, you know, somewhere. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go there. It's too romantic. I want to go when I'm (laughs) married or in a relationship. But, you know, over the last two years, I realized you can't wait to live your life for the what ifs and the maybes and the, and the, all of that. Like you cannot wait to live your life. And I was doing that before where I didn't want to do certain things because I felt that you know, it was a certain kind of person or a certain kind of setting or the timing wasn't right for me to do that. And now I'm like, just go. We lost so many people. And and I really realized that whole YOLO thing that used to be popular, like a few years ago, that phrase, you only live once. That's real. It is true. It's like, why not live now while you can instead of waiting for the possibility of later? It's unfortunate though, that it takes events like what you've been through and what I've been through, because I lost my father back in October. And mm, so it's, sorry. thank you. It's so unfortunate that we as humans just can't wrap our, and this is not everybody, but we just can't wrap our heads around that concept of live now. Like it, it takes experiences, like what we've been through to make us wake up and realize that. And even then people will say, holy shit, we only live once and look, look, look at so-and-so they passed and they didn't get to do everything they wanted to do. And I'm going to do that. And then time passes. And then where does that go again? Then they're right back into the same patterns, doing the same things mm-hmm. and not living the life they want. We really do need to wake up and realize that you only get one go around. So why not make the best of it? You're only here for a short time and you never know when your time is. Yeah. And you know what I also realize is that you're always young. Because when I think about people that are, you know, my father's age, 57. And I think about people that are 75 and they're passing. Like, it always feels like it's too soon. Yep. Like, you, you feel like I, I still had more to do. I still had more to give, more life to live. And so I feel like we always feel young. Like even those people that are 90 years old, especially when they're still in their right mind and they're getting along just fine. You're like, but they were doing okay. They didn't have any health issues. It's just age. And and then they're just gone. But one of my mottos as a result of 2020 is that when I'm on my deathbed, I want to be able to say, I'm glad I did instead of, I wish I had. And that's how, you know, when you've truly lived, you know, your life to the fullest, when you're able to say, I'm glad I did. 100%. That is it right there. That sums it all up. (laughs) What does the word empowerment mean to you? Empowerment. I think empowerment to me is a, it's a word that I think is a giving. It's it's something that you give. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily, I mean, you can give it to yourself, but when I think of empowering somebody, I, I don't look at that as something that I do for myself. But I will say this, that sometimes when you are empowered, your words are empowering someone or you're, 
your actions are empowering somebody. It does fill you as well. It fills your spirit as well to be giving that to somebody, that empowerment, that encouragement. So I would say that empowerment means that you are giving, you're feeding into somebody. You're fe- positive. You're feeding positive words and affirmations and all those sort of things. You're feeding into somebody and you're empowering them to go on and achieve whatever it is that they're trying to achieve or to even just know that they're not alone yeah, and that you're there for them. And you can be that sounding board that gives them that boost that they might need when they lose it. That's how I perceive empowerment. Okay. We're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions, just be two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Okay. What was your dream job as a child? I wanted to be a cop. What was your very first job? Finish line at the mall. what is the first thing you notice about a person their eyes how would you describe yourself in one word resilient what is your favorite word whatever (laughs) (laughs) all right if you came with a warning label rochelle what would yours say handle with care if you could teach the world one thing what would it be empathy what's one thing you want but cannot buy with money Peace. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. (laughs) What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? Honestly, you know, I go back to to my father, just, you know, being able to be there with him in his final moments when, you know, a a lot of people, you know, even including yourself, which I'm sorry to hear, were not able to do so. And that was an unexpected occurrence. Like I did not expect anyone in my family to be diagnosed with COVID. I also didn't expect that it would be so personal, but I am blessed that I was in a position to be there. Well, I'm glad for you and happy for you that you got to to do that because as you said, there are so many people who never got the opportunity. So I'm very happy to hear that you, at least some people got that opportunity, you being one of them. I'm very happy to hear that for you. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell me about a moment when a person's kindness made a difference in your life? Oh my gosh, there's been so many moments of people being kind to me. From friends to family, it's really hard to just even pinpoint <laughs> one thing because, you know, I have a really great family and I have really great friends and I'm trying to think, you know, I could use the typical, you know, I was in Starbucks line and somebody paid for my coffee <laughs> in the forward. car ahead of me, you know, <laughs> but I, I just, I'm blessed that I, I think I just, I surround myself with kind people just in general. And yeah, I can't, um, I can't pinpoint one incident because I I feel like most of it was just an act of love. So yeah, I can't pinpoint one. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? I've thought about this. One woman in the world. I don't know. I kind of feel like this is going to sound like a little basic, I guess. Not that she's basic, but I can't think of some like (laughs) world leader or whatever. She's not basic at all. But I think I would want to sit down and talk to Rihanna because I think for one, me, I like Rihanna's energy. I feel like she just keeps it super, super real. I feel like she's shifted her focus to really being a businesswoman as opposed to an artist. And she's obviously been extremely successful in it. I don't know. I just feel like she and I could just have a good conversation. I mean, I know she's pregnant now, but even if we wanted to have an edible or something like whatever, she couldn't have it now, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think we would have a really, really great conversation and a good time. I, I just have a kindred spirit with, with her and just yeah. I just like her realness and her rawness and how she also is very unapologetic and like who she is. 
If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Don't trust so easily. Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your corner of the world, your people, your tribe, your friends, all of that, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What, what would you say? What words of wisdom would you impart? I would encourage all of them to live their life to the absolute fullest, to be forgiving, to have grace and even be forgiving of themselves and have grace towards themselves because too often people think that forgiveness and grace is just an outward thing, but it's really a lot of times inward. I would tell them to keep pushing, not to give up. I would tell them that life sucks, but we're here. Okay. (laughs) And we got to deal with it. So deal with it with a sense of courage, resiliency, laugh, just be, be able to laugh, not only, you know, at others, but be able to laugh at yourself and hold yourself accountable. Self-accountability is the most beautiful attribute that you can have, because when you're able to hold yourself accountable, you are more responsible with how you treat yourself and how you allow others to treat you as well. Beautifully said. Great way to end the interview. Rochelle, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today and share a bit about your story, your journey. I truly appreciate the vulnerability and in some of the things you shared. And it's been an absolute honor to sit down and speak with you and go along your journey with you as you tell your story and and some of the some of the parts of, of what you've been through and dealt with. So thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Rochelle Ritchie. She is a media and crisis communications expert, a writer, and a political analyst. Thank you so much, Rochelle. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.